Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's the 16th of November, but you're listening to this episode of Citizen D on the 15th of December 2022. My name is Doman and with us today is Dr. Rhys Farding, the Director of Children's Policy at Reset Australia, an affiliate of Reset, an initiative working to counter digital threats to democracy across the globe. Dr. Farting is focusing on securing children's rights in the digital age, so welcome Rhys. Let's start with the most basic question there is. So why is the children's rights or children's digital rights debate picking up now? What's so special about, about uh, this particular moment in time? Well, yeah, welcome and um, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And you say that that's a basic question, like why now? Um, I think it, I mean, it, on one level it's very basic, but it's also very, very interesting as a question and a, a good place to sort of ground us. And I think on a sort of really obvious, broad level, um, I think, you know, it's become clear that the, the world, you know, the population has woken up to the scale of what's going on. We've got children and young people who are living these digital lives more than ever before. And I think we all saw that um, during the pandemic when education went online, when young people's leisure pursuits went online, when all of their communication with friends went online. We suddenly realised that actually there is a whole digital world that children and young people inhabit in exactly the same way as you know you and I inhabited the park the school you know the real world we went to malls and shopping centers and things like actually there is a digital world that children and young people now access um, and I think we've known for a while that there are incredible risks for young people in this digital world but also that there's incredible opportunities Um, but I think more recently, as young people's lives have been growing and growing and expanding in the digital space, the level of concern that people have had about those risks and opportunities has, has picked up. Um, and I think what we saw in response to that was in Europe in particular, um, a real drive to sort of realise children's rights in the digital world. There was this, you know, awareness, okay, we've got this huge digital world that young people are inhabiting. Let's take the basic framework that we have in the I don't even know what the real world is anymore. They're so integrated. But in the sort of offline analog world of children's rights and let's see how they apply in the digital world and how we can make children's rights a framework that, that is real. Because, I mean, just as rights, young people's rights travel with them as they cross a border, like young people don't lose their, their rights when they travel from Slovenia to Croatia, um, they shouldn't lose their rights as they travel from, you know, their bedroom into the classroom via Zoom, you know, it, it should be the same concept. Um, and so I think Europe pushed really, really hard on this because Europe's got a, a long tradition of realising children's rights. Um, and there was this idea that this, this could be the framework forward. Um, and I think that was, that was a sort of big movement because the sort of traditional ways or the earlier ways that we had about thinking about young people and risks and opportunities in the digital world um, in different parts of the world were very different. Um, so I think in, in the US, there, there had been a very big focus on parental engagement and parental consent. So there was this idea that, oh, my gosh, digital world risks opportunities. Um, let's just make sure parents oversee everything. Everything's got to be about parental consent. Um, but I think that 
you know, there was a really broad understanding that in many ways that absolutely misses the point because parents can no more manage the risks or create opportunities in the digital world than young people themselves can. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's good for parents to be involved. The family unit is very important, um, but it was an inappropriate sort of fix for, for what was going on. Um, and then there was a sort of earlier attempt, um, you know, your listeners might have spotted by my accent that I clearly grew up in Australia. Um, but I think Australia definitely was in its own way world leading on this stuff in, in that about, I think it was eight years ago now, we passed the world's first online safety act. Um, and so we looked at the risks um, and opportunities of the digital world for young people. And we said, okay, this is a safety piece. Let's look, let's address this through a safety lens, um, which is incredibly myopic. Um, it misses a lot of the risks. So, you know, a lot of the risks that young people experience in the world aren't necessarily about safety. They're about privacy. Um, they're about well-being. Um, you know, the you know, addictive behaviours, these sorts of things. There's lots of risks that are kind of are young people safe online and misses. Um, and it also misses all of the opportunities. You know, there's nothing in a safety framework about maximising the huge opportunities that the digital world can provide to young people. Um, you know, mm. In, in many ways, if you want the safest digital experience for young people and you just care about the safest, take them offline. Mm. Hey, you know, you miss, you yeah. miss the point. Um, yeah, and so I think Europe, Europe sort of looked at what was going on and looked at its long tradition of, of human rights and children's rights and thought, okay, this is our framework, this is how we're going to push. Um, and I'll give them credit. Um, there was a big European push um, and it also sort of, I think, reached a bit of a global consensus. So we, um, I'm not sure if you will have seen it, but um, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child um, released a general comment that sort of said, look, here are children's rights in the digital world. It basically said, you know, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, it applies in the digital world and here's how. And so there's been a sort of global shift, um, very, very much coming from Europe. And I think global regulation is trying to catch up in a lot of ways to this, this push towards children's rights. Mm-hmm. You've opened up a lot of <laughs> a lot of topics or or sub questions, but but let's focus on maybe the most obvious one. So why why was there a need to separate or to sort of focus exclusively on the digital rights of of children uh, in in regards to okay, all of the bad things that are going on online are mm-hmm. happening to both young and old, right? So by addressing it one would think that you could you know kill two birds with one stone i guess if you would address it in a in a in a uh, yeah in a roundabout way but it's basically yeah splitting up and focusing just on yes yeah yeah exactly that actually you could do all of population and cover children and young people too um and I'm, i'm furiously sort of nodding my head as as we go here which listeners might be able to pick up on um but i mean i think that's that's a really great point um and it you know, in many ways, I think young people don't have a special case, um, but in many ways, I kind of think they do. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, if, if, I, if I'm leaning on they don't have a special case, you know, you nailed it there. We all face digital risks and opportunities, and they're all different for all of us. So my risks and opportunities online will be different to me because I'm a woman. Um, it will be different to people of colour. It will be different to everyone. It will be different to children and old people. You know, like there are all risks and opportunities that we intersectionally experience. Um, and on one level, it would be absolutely amazing if we can create a regulatory framework um, 
that contains and holds those risks and minimises them and addresses them um, and opens up opportunities at the same time. Um, and, you know, this is a really live question. Like in the US at the moment, you've got people who are putting forward online safety and online privacy regulations or proposals for regulations for children. And you've got other senators and Congress folk who are putting forward um, whole of US, you know, um, American privacy bills, you know, um, things that we've sort of never seen or thought about before. And, and there's a real live argument that says, look, if you, if you just work on children, you miss everyone else, so you should do everyone and then you'll cover children. It's a real policy debate. Um, but obviously I would say this as someone who works in the space of children and young people's rights, um, I think that young people on balance do have a special case. Firstly, I think there's a real moral special case for children and young people to, to be first. And I think that's really important. Let me use the phrase first here. Um, because children and young people are datafied from birth in a way that you and I cannot imagine. And I'm assuming, you know, you're roughly my age. Um, I'm going to say that neither of our parents would have bought wearables for us as a baby that monitored, you know, like clothes. Like there's a baby sock you can buy that monitors your heartbeat and your oxygen level that's quite mm. popular um, and sends that data to an app so that it can be permanently watched and monitored. Um, and, you know, it, it's an editable sock that grows. You can wear it from zero to five, right? Like mm. we never had pregnancy apps where people were sharing data about our development in utero, you know, and you think about that level of data that, that's known, that incredibly sensitive data, and it's, astronomical um, I mean from everything from you know the risks that it presents from hacks you know we, we've seen a lot of medical data hacks at the moment um you know but that's only if, if the bad actors get hold of it I mean I still worry about the good actors like all of these companies that are making baby wearables they own the data it's not mm. that child's data right they can legitimately sell themselves or sell that data to medical insurance companies and you know you could get people being denied health insurance in their 40s because they had a heart aneurysm as a baby you know like there's just so many consequences um for the way that all of this data can be used about young people that you and I never had to to deal with and, and those consequences are real now like I'm not sure if you followed this but in um what was it 2020 I think um in the UK um at the first when COVID just kicked off um, high, the end of high school exams were cancelled in the UK because we couldn't get we couldn't get kids into classrooms to do exams. Um, so we went with teacher teacher assessed work. So you know that gave everyone their high school leaving grades. Um, and we then deployed an algorithm in the UK where I am at the moment to um, correct that algorithm so that it, it sort of matched what last year's results were. Of course, written in that algorithm was a bias so that um, young people who come from poor neighbourhoods, their scores would go down and young people who came from rich neighbourhoods, their scores would go up so that it would match the scores of last year, right? Like young people's futures are being shaped by this digital world in a way we can't even imagine. But their present is also being incredibly shaped. And these are huge, big life opportunities for young people. We had young people missing out on university placements or, you know, making really big decisions about their life on the base of an algorithm. Um, and in that sense, you know, we were the lucky generation. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, young people do have, a, have, have the right to have that addressed. But I'll just jump back to what I said first. I think young people have the right to address, have that addressed first. 
Um, mm -hmm. And that's my pragmatic reason, I think, for sort of pleading a special case for young people. Because in so many ways, children can show us our future in more than the obvious way. You know, like people always think, oh, yeah, children show us our future because they are our future. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's a bit obvious. Um, but actually, if we can get things right for children and young people now, why can't that be a roadmap for what we do for the rest of us? Um, and it just seems that at the moment there's an incredible political appetite, there's political consensus, there's social consensus around the need to get this right for children and young people. So if we can build the framework, if we can build the digital world that works for children and young people, well, then maybe that's, that's the model that we can all then follow and expand out. Like I don't think anyone who works on children and young people is saying, yes, children's privacy, and then stop at age 18. <laughs> um, you know, we're looking at the political realities of the world um, yeah. and saying that this actually, you know, for so many reasons, children and young people deserve this. Um, and also um, this is a way to to reopen the political debate and discussion about the, the protections that the rest of us deserve too. Mm -hmm. So, so, so you, you've mentioned, or, or my question, we started this debate with a question, why is, it, why is the debate around uh, children's rights picking up now, right? And you already mentioned there were some previous attempts of doing the right thing the wrong way, sort of. And uh, one of those wrong ways was basically put all of the blame or put all of the responsibility to the parents, to the parental controls, to filters, to yeah, special access, uh, special access setups and stuff like that. What were, uh, but, but that wasn't the only wrong way of, of doing the right thing, right? So, so could you highlight some additional like wrong ways that were, let's say in place in the not so uh, not so far away uh, uh, past. Yeah, um, okay. So I, th I think that's a really good question, and I think we see, you know, there, there's this sort of responsabilization of children and young and parents, as you put it, as one wrong way. Um, I think we've seen another sort of wrong way um, in. I'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. the way we've or the way we've, the first wave of how we've attempted to sort of control a lot of these harms for children and young people is, is from a sort of policy perspective at least, um, has been through takedown and notice. Um, so, so, you know, firstly, there's been a sort of notice, uh, uh, sorry, takedown piece where actually we've been saying, oh my God, once you find this piece of content, you have to take it down, you have to take it down. Um, and there's been a real push for sort of, um, taking down content is one way forward um, and in Australia where I come from that's really really big um, that's that's the basis of our online safety act so we have an entire sort of law that says if you see any of these um, what is it five types of content report them to our in effect public ombuds um, and within 12 hours Twitter have to take it down or you know Instagram has to take that child bullying content down um, which you know is wonderful um, if you're a young person who's been bullied or if you're an adult who's been um, a victim of some image-based abuse, um, it's great that these things get taken down. But you fundamentally, you know, the harm has to have happened. Someone has to have reported it. And then you get these regulators playing whack-a-mole. You mm. know, um, it's not a systemic approach. It doesn't look at how systems are built to promote problematic content um, or indeed how, how business models are built to deliberately... <laughs> engage and create it um, so it's like a downstream solution 
Mm. I think we've had other attempts at downstream solutions. So I think around privacy in particular, we've focused on a consent and notice model. So like, um, you know, this idea that when you go onto a website or an app, if you click I agree, it's just a free roll. <laughs> you clicked consent, we can now steal your firstborn child and bake them up in a stew, whatever we had in the slime plant, go for it, you know. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting that actually the digital world went for that and the privacy world sort of went down that route. Because if you look at, you know, advances in consumer law, um, particularly, most of consumer law has been saying, you know, if you've got unfair or deceptive practices in your terms and conditions, it doesn't matter if people consented to them. Like, you can't ask people to consent to be abused. Um, and, you know, so in consumer law, that sort of doesn't happen. But for some reason, in digital law, we seem to have, have leapt down that approach, um, including and, and particularly for children and young people. Like, you know, we have people, you know, big tech companies who are saying, oh, it's, it's perfectly fine for us to collect and use young people's data this way. It's perfectly fine for us to broadcast their live geographic location because they clicked consent. You know, they're 13, they clicked consent. And you're like, well, you know, at what point did they have a real choice? Like it's it's 2022, the world is digital, right? Like tell me what not consenting to having your data abused means while trying to be alive and be a child right now. Mm. Like, it, it would mean you don't go to school. It would mean you don't contact your friends. It would mean that you can't access any information. It, you know, consent is sort of meaningless. Um, mm. But then also the mechanisms by which they've implemented it. I mean, we, did, we I did a piece of research last year and it was a small piece of research that just looked at the, 10 most popular apps for children and young people in Australia, um, you know, which are things that would be very familiar as living as well, like, you know, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, um, Steam, Twitch, those sort of places, um, and looked at technically how did they justify what they did with young people's data? How did they get consent? Um, you know, and we looked at the consent notices and, you know, there's the obvious thing, all your privacy policies, they take an hour, on average an hour and 45 minutes to read. I think TikTok's clocked in at five and a half hours to read if you were to actually read it. Um, but they also present riddles with dark patterns. Like, you know, they ask young people, um, do you want to connect this app to your phone book? You know, and that, that's the question, but the way they present it is, this app is way more fun with friends. Do you want to find your friends with a giant red button that says, find my friends? And then underneath in tiny gray font, no thanks, I'm a loner. You know, mm. you think, well, how is this, how is this meaningful consent? You know, like, so I think, you know, we, the, the, the path to sort of realising children's rights online has been sort of littered with a sort of, um, faulty attempts at sort of ways forward of which you know consent and notice is one of them um parental consent safety as I mentioned there's been lots of little routes that we've tried that haven't quite worked that I mm. think encouraged people to sort of go back to some deeper fundamentals almost um and and think it's got to be children's rights it's got to be a holistic framework otherwise you're just going to miss miss too much mm. What do you think is the reason that we went uh, we went towards developing this framework in a very trial and error kind of way, right? Why why weren't we like why didn't we learn something from as you said uh, consumer law, consumer protection and stuff, and other stuff that that is basically you know worked through these these uh, I sh I could say like the same tricks 
of coming from from the industry just focused on not on on digital environment but on yeah let's call it physical environment I, I think that's such a good question and I think also there's there's so many like lawmakers and regulators around the world scratching their head going like oh my god why did we fall for that um but I think honestly like the, the sheer answer is the the pace you know the pace at which the, the digital technology evolved particularly over the last you know 20 30 years um, compared to, you know, the speed at which legislation is developed, the speed at which regulators work, the speed at which, like, legal precedent, you know, um, case law and common law develops, you know, has historically been matched to, you know, the speed of industries um, that don't double every two years, that, mm. that, that don't make these sort of profits of lights of which the world has literally never seen before. Um, something something truly unusual happened in the in the sort of digital explosion, and I just think it let it, it opened up the genie's box for a whole bunch of these incredibly um, big, incredibly profitable companies um, to almost decide what their regulatory framework was, decide what their legislative framework was, and and employ and, and deploy lobbyists to hold it that way for as long as they can. Um, and, mm. and, and, you know, I, I think the descriptions that a lot of people have of it being the Wild West um, really were accurate. And now now we're in a situation where, you know, regulators, legislators, the general public have kind of caught up. And now we're like, okay, well, how do we rein them in? So we're sort of starting from a position of how do we rein them in rather than how do we, how do we corral and build for the right future? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just, you know, technology took society by surprise. Mm. And what were some of the like the aspects of of this catching up process? So what 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 happened that made uh, legislatures and MPs and and other actors in this field go from oh you know they know best or you know techno techno solutionism and self regulatory models uh, for everyone to oh no 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 now we're gonna now we're throwing books at them. Yeah, I, I think, so again, I can only speak for the sort of, I mean, I can hazard a guess in general, but definitely for children and young people. Um, I think the main driver, or, you know, the, the two very related drivers was one, parents were watching, you know, most young, most, most adults, most people in the world have some young person or child involved in their life, whether it's their own child, nieces, nephews, their neighbours, kids, most of us sort of see young people in the world. Um, and I think a lot of parents and aunts like myself and everyone sort of got these glimpses of what was happening and we were like, ooh, ooh, that's that's interesting. So there was a sort of, you know, just general eyebrows raised. I think like every every adult in society very quickly raised an eyebrow at what we were seeing. Um, and, and that heightened sense of awareness, that eyebrow raise, as I just called it, um, was matched very quickly with, with enough stories of harm. Like, I, I wish I could say that this is a story of people sitting down and thinking, God, there's a lot of opportunities here and we can do some positive framing and we can really take this forward and design the digital world for young people. But I don't think it was. I just think enough stories of harm came up where we heard of young people who, you know, had tragic, on the extreme, and like young people who tragically lost their lives, like other young people who tragically taken their own lives or, or been, been killed as a result of things. Um, to you know, full force medical addictions that are happening. Um, I just think the sort of the narratives and the stories of harms that we heard from the online world made people realise 
gosh, we've got to act. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's when we tried all of these routes, be it, you know, um, education, safety, parental consent. We tried all of this and, and we've sort of landed up on children's rights. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it is just, it's a very sad story um, about what, what prompted the, the movement that we've got right now. Mm -hmm. and so, so what's uh, what's the current situation? What are some of the, let's say, different approaches we, you, they are are taking this time around to to assure that on one side, you know, we're not going to go through the same uh, failures of of the past, but at the same time that we're building something that is, um, I hate the term, but you know, future proof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a really, really good question. I mean, I, and I think this is where, you know, I can I can say that the past of how we got there is a very sorry story. Um, but actually, I mean, maybe I'm too Pollyanna-ish, but I think I'm very positive and optimistic about the changes that we're seeing because it is it is a, an exciting space and we are seeing lots of positive movement happening in the sort of regulatory and policy space for children and young people. Um, and I'm really optimistic that, that we, we, we can get some change um, so I think we've seen we've seen lots of things. So we've seen children's rights, or at least where I, I see it starting was, you know, when we saw children's rights, or specifically this sort of phrase about best interests. So actually, you need to function in, in children and young people's best interests. I.e., you know, what what none of this legislation says is, i.e., kids have to trump commercial best interests. You know, but it's children's <laughs> best interests. Um, mm. We've seen that introduced into data protection regulations in first in the UK, um, but then followed very quickly in UK. Sorry, in Ireland, France, Sweden, the Netherlands. Um, I think mm -hmm. is and we're poised to do that. We're moving to an EU-wide. Um, there will be an EU-wide proposal and consultation very very shortly. That I know that a lot of young people and a lot of organisations in Slovenia are very keen and active to, to participate in. Um, but we've also seen starts of, of movements right across Europe um, beyond data protection. So, you know, the EU's Digital Services Act adds in rights, albeit, again, that's that broader human rights framework or human dignity framework, including children and young people, which is very exciting. Um, but we're even seeing very exciting movements in the US. Um, so, you know, recently California introduced a bill um, which is I don't know whether it's data protection because I don't really have that in the US or consumer protection, but somewhere between those two pieces, um, they've introduced um, children's best interests as a kind of um, framer for actually here is here's some standards you need to meet around digital products for, for digital products and services for children and young people. Mm. Um, we've got draft legislation. I mean, again, I'm not sure how likely it is to be passed, but it's, it's seriously being considered. It's being voted out of its committee and it's heading to a full floor vote in the US that um, is around kids online safety, um, but it does also include the best interest principle, right? Um, and we even see Australia, that sort of old stalwart where we're like, no, safety, safety. And um, we're seeing conversations in Australia where they're like, oh, okay, yeah, we get it. Like it's, it's gotta be broader. And we're seeing those conversations shift. So there's lots of really exciting um, legislative stuff going on. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that's existing alongside. There's been a big push um, all around the world, including in Europe, I think, for digital literacy for, for a long time. Um, and I see them as sort of two sides of the same coin, um, you know, so that you, you need them both. And, and I think it's sort of like the argument about structure and agency, um, whereas, you know, 
digital literacy is a bit like agency. If you can get digital literacy right, if you can genuinely build up some broad critical digital literacy skills in your population, um, then actually young people can kind of mitigate and prevent a lot of the risks themselves and open up their own opportunities. Um, but by the same token, it can't all be children and young people. It would be completely unfair to responsibilise children and young people and say, you are responsible for your safety. We're going to train you how to push the right buttons so that you mm. stay safe online while, you know, Google is designing these products that are dangerously addictive. Like, you will know how to self-regulate your own behaviour. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, that's where the sort of regulatory piece that I'm really excited about is coming in. And I think those, those twin forces, that agency and that structure, that sort of digital literacy alongside a really strong regulatory framework that reshapes the digital context is where I think we're going to see some a lot of the risks that young people experience um, really, really minimised. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of opportunities will open up as well because I think particularly for children and young people, as you call it, the physical world, the real world, whatever you want. Um, there's a lot of opportunities that are missing from that. Like, you know, young people can't vote. They can't really be great political citizens. There's not much space for them. But in this sort of digital world, actually, young people's agency and political citizenship could, could open up in these really exciting ways. Mm. So I think there's there's a bright future. Um, it's just a, a, a long walk to get there. <laughs> and you, you've already mentioned the, the concept of, of digital literacy being this sort of empowering um, empowering tool to sort of say or to sort of uh, uh, push part or the majority of responsibility for, for everything that's going on uh, onto the, let's say, the consumer, the citizen, the, the child. And I'm just thinking out loud, how is this different on or in what way should we interpret the role of digital rights in combination with, uh, as you said, the regulatory framework so we don't fall into the same trap as we did with, oh, you agreed with our you know, privacy policy. Yeah, well, then your kidney belongs to us. Yeah, I, yes. I mean, and that is such a good question. Um, and, and I think it's, I mean, first, it's important to, to realise that digital literacy, and, and I, I guess I mean critical digital literacy, um, is, is also a right. Like children and young people have the right to critical digital literacy. So it's sort of, you know, it's part of the framework. But I think that part of how we got here or part of how we ended up here is that, as we were talking about earlier, when there was a real gap in regulation and parents were raising eyebrows and people were seeing harms, um, big tech, you know, decided to preempt and, and attempt to sort of contain this. Um, and big tech actually funded a lot of the initial work around digital literacy and digital citizenship training and, and online safety training, as they called it. And so big tech stepped up and really developed a lot of these programs and initiatives to support young people to keep themselves safe. And, you know, look, I'm not making any content, comments about the content of those training programs. Actually, I think it's probably really good if young people have some basic education that says things like, maybe you don't want to talk to too many stranger, particularly adult strangers online. You know, that's probably helpful. Um, but I think it was really sold as that alone is the solution. And that was really, really pushed um, by big tech. And it was it really did get adopted in a lot of places. So I think particularly in Australia, that's part of the reason we ended up with online safety 
as our narrative because big tech was saying, oh yeah, there's a safety problem. Look, safety training, safety, safety. Um, you know, and it narrowed it down. Um, and I think that when you, you know, when you simply just focus on digital literacy, um, or when you simply just focus on, you know, digital literacy for parents, because that's also the other part of it, you know, like there's all of this training around teaching parents how to monitor, appropriately monitor your young person's access and, you know, what are the safety and controlled features available to you on this app or that app. Um, if we just do that alone, we really are putting children and parents at the front line of, of safety and protection when actually, like, I mean, who in their right minds thinks that actually an 11 year old should be the front line of keeping themselves safe, right? Like mm. literally no one. Um, and so you need to build these frameworks around them. We need to almost flip it so that actually the last line of defense is that 11 year old. And the, the line before that is their mom. And the line before that is their teacher. And the line before that is the department for education. And then, then it's the government. And, you know, actually we've built this sort of regulatory framework so that young people are their own, their, their last line of defense, not their first. Um, but obviously that, when you build that out, you know, that requires state action um, to rein in and regulate big tech. And, of course, I think big tech, you know, there's a lot of intelligent people working in there. That's that's exactly what they don't want. <laughs> mm. So we got sold this narrative that it was upside down. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of the time these two worlds have not had conversations as a result. So, you know, I work on, on tech and regulation. Um, and I know that there's this digital literacy world over there and, like, good for them. I think that's important. But obviously I think I'm more important um, and probably the inverse is true as well. Um, and, and actually I think it's just a, a reaction that we have to the um, complete imbalance at which these two fields um, evolve when, when the real story is, you know, it, it has to be, it has to be both. Um, you know, you can't over-responsibilise parents and you can't over-responsibilise children, um, but actually everyone is responsible, you know, including big tech companies and including states. You know, this has got to be a story of all of us doing our bit. Um, and so it's a sort of, it's an exciting conversation to open up, I think, when I think about children's best interests and actually what that means. I think there's some really exciting conversations to have around what does best interest mean for mm -hmm. critical digital literacy skills. Mm. Um, and and I'm, I'm hoping I'm having some of those very early conversations with some colleagues in Slovenia right now. Um, and we're, we're doing a sort of global piece of research looking at what young people in Slovenia think around day-to-day um, -day privacy, what they want, um, but also how could we sort of feed that through to the education program um, and we're doing a bit of comparative research to young people in Australia but also young people in Ghana and young people in Antigua and Barbuda as well so sort of four very different contexts um, but it's all designed to sort of understand what what does best interests look like both in a regulatory framework but also in a kind of digital literacy framework um, coming up from children and young people themselves um, so I think there's some really exciting um, conversations to be had exploring exactly that nexus that you asked about. Mm -hmm. Before I ask you, uh, do you see th this uh, this balancing act between uh, digital uh, digital skills or digital literacy and regulatory framework happening in practice? So do you see these two, let's say, sides working together? Let me let me go back a little bit and and first. 
focus on the issue of um, of these digital skills within uh, within the online environment that has become in the past few years extremely extremely uh, I'm not gonna I don't know if I'm, I, I'm gonna say the word right in the first try platformerized so so instead of you know the the good old uh, internet or the good or uh, the good old world wide web which was sort of like this huge forest you were walking around you didn't know what's behind the what's behind that hill we've grown accustomed to this locked in environment right to where you have the 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 big owner of the of the platform and then everything happens within the limits of that platform and i, I just want to hear your thoughts on let's let's say the comparison between the role of digital skills back then when it was for a lack of a better algebra uh, this uh, this uh, forest type deal with these yeah prisons boxes factories whatever you might call it that that actually have like a beginning and middle center and and so forward yeah and i mean i think that's such an interesting interesting piece to think about um and you're right i mean the and again i think that's about that the issue that the speed of technology has presented is, is partly also that curriculums have not been able to keep up um, and, you know, where we used to have, you know, a more decentralised internet, um, you know, with, with multiple platforms, the skills that people needed to navigate it were generalist skills almost. Um, but actually, as, as we've sort of seen these, the home apps emerge from Meta to, to Google, um, they really have held a lot of the technology and held a lot of the advances and then built their own. SDKs and software and pieces like built themselves into the architecture of things, you know, mm -hmm. some might say monopolistic fashion. Um, but I think that, you know, and, and it's interesting. I mean, and, and I don't think there's a sort of um, answer to how did they do it then versus how did they do it now? Because I think very early on, no one was looking at um, digital literacy skills for children and young people. You know, what, what we were talking about then was ICT skills, mm -hmm. like coding. How do you teach young people to code? Um, mm -hmm. how do you teach young people to build in XYZ? You know, it, it, it was almost the skills to engineer the digital world. Um, I, I think the kind of socio-technical angle of like, oh, okay, actually we need to also think about how young people as, as human beings, as citizens, operate in this space and provide some sort of critical digital literacy came much, much later. Um, but it was, you know, it, it happened after, as you as you called it, the platformerization. Um and, and we saw this, like if you look back at some of the old online safety programs, many of the ones that are still operating today, they've been built and they're delivered by Google or Meta mm. themselves or, you know, um, and even sort of five years ago, this was really not considered problematic. Like I can remember talking to schools and they're like, oh, yeah, we use um, Google's online safety, I think it's like the safety, safety legends training program mm -hmm. in our primary mm -hmm. school. And I'm like, you don't think it's problematic that the people who are sort of engineering all the risks are the ones delivering the safety training to your kids? And they're like, no, like, you know, <laughs> but I mean, again, that was a sort of tech utopian world where everyone thought that Google actually was their best friend and out to help them, you know. Um, but we still see this. Um, and, and the questions of how regulation and 
curriculum or, well, I guess it's digital literacy through regulation is a question of curriculum, right? It's talking about actually how does the, how, how do governments decide actually what is the curriculum for a, a digital literacy that's needed for children and young people and sort of roll it out. And, and that, that nexus of curriculum, I think you see some really interesting ways. So um, where I come from in Australia, we are, you might be very surprised to know, um, we are less um, rigorous in our regulatory approach than European partners. We're a bit more American in that sense. Um, and so we, by and large, we love um, self and co-regulation. We, we have this wonderful um, practice that is uniquely Australian, pioneered in the 90s, and we're still using it called co-regulation, where we decided that self-regulation didn't really work for a lot of things. Um, but what we could do is we could let industries write their own codes, frameworks, practices, requirements, um, and then we'd give it to a regulator to enforce, right? So it's sort of self-regulation <laughs> in a different name. I mean, look, for a lot of industries, it has worked, right? Like for the aviation industry, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, no one knows better what requirements for brake pads need to, I, I don't know, um, and it seems to have worked very well for Qantas, you know, like it can really work. It mm. does work when you get companies and industries that aren't good corporate citizens, right? Um, mm. And so we've relied on this co-regulation piece. And so when I think about how we've applied that to our critical safety curriculum, as, as we call it in Australia, um, we let people, companies, Google, Facebook, also a lot of private companies write their own safety curriculum. And then because we, we've got that regulator, that ombuds that I was talking about, that regulator stamps whether those curriculums are, are good enough or not good mm -hmm. enough, certifies them, and then they're allowed to be delivered in schools. So mm -hmm. we have these huge, all, you know, almost all online safety education in Australia is delivered delivered um, by private companies, right? And, and that, it, it's not standardised. Um, it is regulated insofar as they have to be certified, and at least, you know, that is better than a lot of other countries, let's be honest. Um, but there isn't a sort of... You know, that's the way we've handled this. And it's like, well, actually, you know, I mean, maybe I sound a little like, you know, social democrat here, but it's the problems of the private sector that have created these risks for young people. I'm not quite sure where the wisdom of letting the private sector create the solutions is. Um, but, but, you know, that's the sort of Australian approach. You see a sort of European approach emerging where actually um, critical literacy skills are being built into actual curriculums and rolled out through schools. Um, sometimes better, sometimes not so good. Um, but I think there's an awareness that actually this needs to be embedded and part of the kind of, not just ICT education, not just a tech, tech class, but sort of all of the sort of education spaces that young people operate and needs to be built into your English classes, into your geography classes. You know, it, it's got to be sort of mainstreamed across it. Mm -hmm. um, or then you see you know, the third type of regulatory approach, the very sleepy regulatory approach, where it's absolutely nothing, you know, um, and you don't see any attempt to sort of introduce critical literacy skills into curriculum. Um, and I think, you know, that happens in the states because they are the states, bless them, um, but it's also happening in a lot of um, low to middle income countries that are just coming on board now. Um, and a lot of the research I was talking about in, previously in Ghana and Antigua and Barbuda deliberately mm -hmm. aimed to engage with the Department for Education to sort of just 
establish what, what young people on the ground are really interested in understanding in that sort of critical digital literacy best interest nexus and actually mm -hmm. how, could that, how could that inform a curriculum. Um, so again, loads of interesting debates and discussions, um, but they are current, <laughs> you know, they're not settled. Mm. True. Uh, we're slowly wrapping up, but I just want to hear your thoughts on, on another issue. So, so looking at, at the field of, let's say, digital rights and digital skills, there's a lot of overlap between, let's say, the three major roles of, of an individual user. So first you have the, the, the user as a, as a consumer. Then you have the, the user as a, as a worker. So there's a lot of the concept of digital work, be it as a programmer or as, a, let's say, a manufacturer of data points that then get you know, gathered, uh, packaged, and, and sold and resold. And then as a, let's say, as a, as a digital citizen or as this weird mutation of a political animal that uses, you know, the online environment to sort of, you know, uh, co-shape the, the, social, the, social, uh, uh, the social world around or the political world around, right? And usually, or, or the way I see it, these digital rights came out of these digital skills, which were basically, first it was, let's say, the consumer, then it was in a way, digital worker, and, and lastly came the, the concept of, of digital citizen, right? So going forward or, or moving forward with, with, with the debate that you've just explained about, you know, what should we focus on when we're thinking about applying this concept of uh, best interest for, for children, for, for adults online, which of these three roles should you think uh, should be in in the focus and and maybe why yeah i think that's really interesting and i um and again this may be special case for children and young people um again i think that sort of what would that be a triad of approaches consumer worker citizen is really interesting and very very true i think quite uniquely for children and young people though the world reached a sort of moral and political consensus at least 150 years ago that children should not work I mean, you know, at different times, different places, we pull kids out of coal mines, we pull them out of factories. Um, it's, it's not universal. I'm, I'm not denying that there is child labour, um, but there is a global consensus that child labour is a bad thing. Um, and indeed, there is a development goal um, to end all forms of child labour by X, Y, Z, uh, you know, uh, um, across the world. And, and, and I think in that sense, for children and young people, um, they're left with being consumers of products um, and citizens, right? And I think that's really interesting when you, when you think that way about what the regulatory framework has for children. Our sort of first and biggest task has to be remove them from the worker space, right? Like children should not be data labourers whose online activity is, is solicited by all of this extended use design where we're designing products so that they can they get stuck on video streamers and social media for 22 hours a day um, because we want we want to extract their data. They're a sort of worker for us. That is not a model that that in any way, shape, or form should should exist or be allowed. And so there's there's a big sort of piece of work I think in the regulatory framework that we do that that we do that. And again, I think you know from a child rights perspective, 
children and young people are very unique consumers. Um, and I think we've, we've again landed on a space around, you know, the role of young people as a consumer, um, you know, in that they are consumers, that they have special um, controls under contract law, um, but also particularly that you can't market to them. Actually, they, they may be consumers. Um, but they are not consumers open to manipulation in the same way that, that adults are. Um, and so you start to see this very different role for children and young people using your, your quite sophisticated three-point pyramid triangle um, that I've not thought about before. Um, and you land on then the role of children and young people as citizens, right, which is, I think, that, that critical space that's not been looked at yet, which is why I think the, children, the children's rights framework is such an expansive one because it opens up that question of opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. Like what are the opportunities for young people um, and what's the agency that young people can exercise? Because I think, you know, as I mentioned before, that the sort of offline world I think has really cramped and stifled young people's sort of citizenship and agency in a lot of structural ways. Um, and so I think children and young people have a really unique positioning in that. Um, and it's possibly a really powerful way of, of looking at it because this is how we unleash you know, all the power of youthful agency and youthful change um, while making sure that they are, they are protected. And again, in a lot of ways, I come back to, don't we all kind of want that? Like, I want my role as a worker in the digital world to be slightly minimised. I want my role as a consumer to be way more protected. I'm like, this is, this is again, a future that children and young people can sort of show us how the digital world operates when you really... Minimise your role as a worker, super protect your role as a consumer and supercharge your role in agency. What does that look like? And if we can do that for young people, I mean, God, I want them on that. I'll tell every app I'm 12 if they work out how to do that. <laughs> this, is, this is a sort of dream world. Mm, that's true. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we've we've covered all the all the question I had, um, uh, and we're always trying to sort of end these debates on a, on a positive note. So, so this uh, this is where we <laughs> put the the final stop. Uh, thank you, Reese, for for dropping by and and uh, yeah, sharing your knowledge and experience and and thoughts on the matter. Best of luck with with your work and dear listener. We're gonna see each other since you're listening to this podcast on the fifteenth of of December. I guess we could call it Happy New Year. And yeah, <laughs> we'll see each other in, in 2023. Thanks, Therese, again, and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for having me.